Good morning again, everybody. Welcome to the Avenue, and so glad you're here this morning. If you are new here visiting, if you're first time here, in the back we have a Next Steps table across the lobby from the coffee, and at that table you'll see an orange Connect card. If you do us a favor and just fill out as much information on that as you would like on that Connect card, leave it there at that table, and we would love to reach out to you this week and connect with you. We'll just send you an email and answer any questions you have or let you know of any other steps on the back of that card. You can ask for information on, and we'll answer that as well through that Connect card. We just want to get to know you a little bit. There is a lot going on here at the Avenue, and one of those things is Growth Track, which happens tonight. Now, if you're new here, you're like, well, what's Growth Track? Growth Track is our on-ramp. It's our place where you can discover more about who the Avenue is and what we're doing here, who we are, what we believe, where we come from, where we're going to. If you've never been through Growth Track, it is for you, and it happens tonight the first Sunday of each month, this happens to be the second because the holiday weekend last weekend. So tonight at Pastors Brandon and Lori's house at 6 to 8, they will have it. Now what will happen there is when you get there, you'll go through uh, some information. You'll go through learning about who we are. You'll also learn who you are because how many times have you met somebody who doesn't understand who they really are? And God has a makeup for you, and he has created you in such a way that you can't live your life fully to the purposes to, that he has created you for until you fully discover who you are. So he's given you a spiritual DNA. He's given you uh, abilities in your life that you need to know what they are so that those gifts can become unlocked. We give you a couple of tests. We talk about that because you can be who you really are created to be once you understand what he's done uniquely for each one of us. And so we encourage you to go through Growth Track. It happens tonight. You can sign up online at myavenue.church forward slash growth track, or you can let them know at the Next Steps table, and they will give you the information on where to be this evening at 6 p.m. Also, shout out to our youth students. Our youth are going to Surge Youth Conference this week. And so it happens Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. I guess they'll get showers on Thursday, because if you've ever been to youth conference, you know how it is. Ain't no time for nobody to take a bath. Unless you met a girl and then you're like, got more deodorant and cologne on than ever was made. We, we believe God's going to do some crazy good things for our students. Thank you to our chaperones and leaders. And we'll be praying for Albert and Brittany and all the leaders and the students as they go to that. I remember back years ago when I was in youth and then as a youth pastor going to youth conferences and summer camps, some of the greatest experiences of my life happened. God touching me, forming me, doing something in me in those moments. And we pray that those will be replicated again for students going out. I think there's almost 2,000 students going to this conference, and so expecting a lot for what God is going to do. So a lot is happening, and as we turn the page from what is happening there to what is happening here, let me, let me let you know the new series we are starting out this morning. So today we're beginning a three-week series that we have asked you to help us form and create. We've never done this before. In five years is the first time we've done a series like this. I've invited a panel of people to join me on stage, and each week it will change somewhat. And as we do, we're answering questions that we gave you topics for. So we said, hey, ask us any question based on some topics that have to do with marriage and dating and singleness and divorce and relationships and finance and life in general, 
answer some questions. So as you submitted questions, we sat down and we went through the questions. And then what we did was we found where what the Bible had to say about those questions. And these are the answers. Why? Because we all have opinions. You have some, I have some, but my opinions should always be secondary to the Word of God. To the point that then my opinions become filtered through the Word of God, and my opinions are the Word of God. The point is not to live life where, well, the Bible says this, but I would believe this, except the Bible says this. No, I get to the place where my thoughts and my opinions, my beliefs, my convictions are all in alignment with the Word of God. We build on the Bible. It is our foundation, unapologetically so. People say, well, that sounds like a crutch, Pastor. Put me in a wheelchair. I'll tell you what it is. It's everything I rely on in my life. I am fully reliant on the Word of God to lead me. He says, build your house on a solid foundation, on a rock, so when life happens, it doesn't collapse. We've seen people's lives collapse around them. We've seen people's lives fall apart. It is due to faulty foundations. So we encourage you to do this, to build your life on the Word of God with this one question. Am I leading a God-first-led life? What does that mean? It simply means this. Is God primary priority in my life? Is it God, then my marriage, then my children? Does my marriage trump God? Do my kids trump my marriage? What is the alignment that I have in my life? Does my job and making money trump all of those things? We want you to leave a God-first life. I know for me personally, if I allow myself to love my wife more than my God, I am not being a biblical husband to her and every bit of a husband that I can be for her. So I have to incline myself to love God first and then love her and same vice versa. Well, what's scripture for that? A man came to Jesus one day and he said, hey, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength. And then he said, the second of these is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so I realized that loving God is the primary driver in my life. And then everything else is secondary to that. A God-first life means I put God first in everything. What does that mean? It means I take the principles of God's Word, and then I build my life upon them, not culture, not society, not mom or dad, not anything else around me, but simply the Word of God. So we want to present to you answers from that. And so as we do, I want to pray. I'm going to ask you to lay down and lay aside any other thoughts or notions and, and be open. Be open to being through, what, allowing God to speak to your life through this. It's the first time we've done this. Typically at this point, I get up and I would preach and we'd be in a message series and a sermon. You can go back on YouTube and watch some of that content if you're new here and want to get an idea of what we're like. But this morning, I do believe God has each one of us here today for this conversation and for this talk because he wants to speak to each one of us through this series. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you this morning for what you're doing. So speak to us today. God, I pray that you would do exactly what you said you would do and unlock areas of our lives that seem to be bound, seem to be caught up, seem to have something going on that maybe we haven't been able to get through or process through. Lord, we, I pray as a church, would live a committed God-first life. We thank you. And in Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. So this morning, let's talk about some of the questions that you have asked. Let's talk about dating and marriage and divorce and 
and lies and betrayal and all these different things. The first question I have, I will ask a question and then you will see on the screens a question listed and then you'll see a scripture uh, as well because we want to be, again, as informed. We thought about doing this in a Q&A format where you could just ask from your seat, but then you may not get an answer from really that is prayed through and searched through. And so we want to study to show ourselves approved. And so we go through this format. So you'll see that everything, again, is in alignment and founded on the word. So question number one, this panel is ready to go. They're fired up. They went long. They had a lot to say about things in the first service. If you come through the doors, we were pushing it. Pastor Jessica was leading worship, and she said, well, I guess I'll just stay up here and start singing because it pretty much carried over from that service. And so we will be a little bit more brief with some of our answers and, uh, uh, but we really want to make sure that we are answering the questions that you ask. So question number one, if someone offends you in words or some action, what is the biblical response? Vice versa, if you have offended someone, what should you do? So this is a question about offense. Well, first of all, Luke 17, 1 says this right here. It says, it is impossible that offenses will come, but that offenses will come, but woe to to whom they do come. And, and as you already know, we live in today's society, and if you allow yourself, you can be offended almost about every single day over something. And, and so, but as Christians, we are to set a different example, and we are to walk a different walk, and, and to try to live the best of our ability with God's help, not to walk and live in offense and be offended all the time. So let's talk about uh, Hebrews 12, 15 says this. It says, exercise foresight and be on the watch to look out after, after one another to see that no one falls back from and fails to secure God's grace, which is his unmerited favor and spiritual blessing, in order that no root of resentment, rancor, bitterness, or hatred shoots forth and causes trouble and bitter torment, and the many become contaminated and defiled by it. Now that was the Amplified Bible version. Um, but what's the first thing to do when offense presents itself to you? That you're the one who was offended. The first word of advice I have for you is don't pick it up. Leave it down there. Be like you're walking your dog and you have those little plastic bags. And make a fence, go, well, I ain't got a plastic bag, so I'm going to leave it there. Proverbs 19.11 says it like this. It said, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. And so God has not called us to walk, uh, he's not called us to be caught up in offense all the time, but the thing is that it hits you so fast in moment that you think you're offended before you realize what happens. But I want to tell you, the first rule is don't pick it up. Secondly, choose your response. The Bible also says that a soft answer turns away wrath. And so when somebody presents you an opportunity to be offended, if you've already made up your mind on how you're going to respond to offense in any way, shape, or form that it comes, um, you're more likely to be able to handle that situation successfully. And the third point is, if you must address it with the offender, be ready for their response. Now, I don't know about you, but I've went up to someone before and said, hey, you offended me, and they're like, what? And the situation doesn't exactly go the way I thought it would go. I thought they were going to be contrite, and they were going to be sorry. So just understand, don't pick it up, choose your response, and be, if you're going to address it, be ready for their reply. 
But if you're the offender, go to that person you offended immediately if you can. Ask for their forgiveness, talk it out, and then move on. I don't want to say that you act like it never happened, but, but don't let it become between you and the other person. Ask for their forgiveness. Be genuine about it. Talk it out and then move on. And just remember, though, do your best not to offend because a brother that's offended is harder to win than a city, it says in the book of Proverbs. So uh, let me ask this question as a follow-up. What do you do in the case where you are um, you're dealing with, maybe you are easily offended? Maybe you are an individual here and you say, well, I just, I, I'm, I'm easily offended. I'm, I'm triggered easily. And, and I hear what you're saying, and that's theology, that's what the Bible says. So not pick it up and different things, but, but what if that's just who I am? How can I, you have an answer for that? How can I process through? I would say that if you find yourself easily offended, that you would ask if there is a deeper hurt inside. Yeah. Normally, people who are already hurt are easily offended. Good. The other thing that I would say is whatever has offended you, match it up against the truth of the word of God. If it's true, deal with it. Mm. If it's not true, lay it at the feet of God and, and know what he says and, and yeah, and heal. So. That's good. That's, you know, it really is the perspective of how of this offense that came at me how do how serious is it and it's not to say that it minimizes offenses because some offenses are great but easily offended people can be triggered by getting mayonnaise on their burger at the drive-thru <laughs> nobody nobody's pointing fingers at this forum can <laughs> you read the rule book uh we can be offended easily it's really having the perspective and the, ab the ability to look at it in that place and understanding that in light of eternity, how small is this? How little is this? And so um, when we are in that, I love the biblical, biblical response because that's why we need the biblical response. And it's a great question because my human response is to let you know I'm getting even because fair is fair. And so if I have to lay it down, now I have to let God do a work that only he can do in that offense. You want to add anything else? I also, I just want to add that a lot of times, if you really think about it, when you get offended and you respond, as, as Pastor just mentioned, that it actually comes from a place of pride. The place of pride of saying, nobody's going to talk to me like that. Nobody's going to do that to me like that. Nobody's going to, you know, act out like that in front of me. And, and, and look, I get it. I'm a man. You're a man. You're a woman. Um, we get that. But it's very imperative that we don't let pride rule our lives because if it does, Bible easily said that pride comes before a fall. And so... Move the pride aside, determine to act biblically, and I, I think the response and the, and the resolution of that will be a lot quicker and cleaner. Awesome. Let's dive into number two here. Uh, how do I manage changes in my spouse? Once they've developed ideas and quirks that weren't there when we got married. Why are you grabbing the microphone? Answering for a friend. <laughs> Um, changes in your spouse, well, of course change is inevitable. We know that. Um, hairstyles change. If you have not gone onto your pastor's social media, scroll way, way, way back 
and you'll see the evolution of hair styles. So hairstyles change, bodies change, things are not gonna stay the same. But also, really, our mindsets are gonna change. We grow and we mature, we're gonna evolve in our thoughts. Um, so dealing with that, though, handling it, um, in 1 Corinthians, a verse we all know, 13.4, love is patient, love is kind. And that's something we all know that the Bible says, but it's something that we easily forget to do every single day in every area of our life, not with just a spouse, um, but just remembering to be patient and be kind. Um, and I get that. On, on the flip side of that, we all have a friend who is so excited about the next big thing. It's going to be the best thing ever, and it's awesome. It's great. We're doing it. And by the time you get on board, they've moved on to the next thing. And that's exhausting. So if you have a spouse who's excited about everything and they're bringing new stuff to the table all the time, that's great and that's awesome. Um, but I would just encourage that, that half of the spouse to remember that you now have a family and a wife um, that you need to communicate these things with. You need to approach them first. You need to have a conversation. What is this going to look like in our family time, financially, emotionally? What is this going to take from us? And you have to make the decision together now before you take any further steps. Um, in the Bible, it, Sarah and Abraham, she had to follow him all over and deal with so many changes and things that he was ready to do um, because he was hearing from the Lord. And I think because he was hearing from God, she was able to trust that she could follow him. She trusted that she could let him lead their family um, the next verse about 2,000 years later from Peter, as he refers back to Sarah, um, who withstood all of those changes, is 1 Peter 3, 5, and 7. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband, Abraham, and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. And then also in verse 7, in the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding. Another version of that says to be considerate of your wife. As you live together, she may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner. So I think that verse just sums it up. Trusting God, allowing your husbands to lead, and not having fear. Um, and then also husbands just being considerate of your wives and your families is a good biblical principle. That's a really good answer, and I think that um, as you process through that, my mind goes to a place of if I am a wife, I'm recognizing that consideration needs to be given. I can imagine the stress that Sarah was under picking up her family and feeling like she had that part of life to manage and follow her husband when he said, I'm going to a place and I don't even know where I'm going. So you can imagine following somebody like that with that type of change coming and yet she was able to do that in kindness and consideration of her husband. But then the other side of that, the scripture continues to say in Peter, as he reflects on that story from a couple thousand years prior, he says then, men, treat your wives as you should unless your prayers are hindered. And men, if you have ever feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling and coming back down in your face, you may consider whether or not you're treating your wives as you should. And that is not as culture says you should. Again, that is a God-first life. So that is a, as the Bible says you should. How does the Bible define a man taking care of his wife? But men, you should lay down your life for your wife just as Christ laid down his life for the church. So it's living sacrificially and putting selfishness to the side. And so those quirks and those things pop up. 
Yes, I, I don't want her to be the same person I married 15 years ago. I do want change. I do want God to be bringing things about. And I get it that sometimes there are quirks and different, uh, different personalities that come and, and things, if things kind of go a different way and maybe it's not God-led, speak into just real quickly here before we move to the next one. What do you do if somebody kind of has some changes that are going, that are, may not be God-led then? And they're just the personality seems to be different or there's quirks and it's something that causes a little bit of alarm or maybe a lot of caution to you as a spouse. Um, well, I would say first go back and listen to Pastor James message about mercy. Um, because we all need it and we extend it to our spouse. Um, and then the second thing that I would say is absolutely pray about it. Bring it to God before you bring it to your spouse. And then, you know, the Bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath. You know, approach them with truth, but approach them with grace and gentleness. You can address something honestly and respectfully, but God gives us a roadmap for how to do that. It's a great answer. Great answer because uh, suppressing it is not the answer or letting it go is not the answer, but confronting it in a healthy way in a, the right environment is, uh, is communication. And if communication is the key to all of relationships, then we must learn how to confront in a healthy way to have that conversation as well. Uh, let's bounce on to question number three. Uh, coming from a single person, they say single dating. How do you find patience in the waiting? How do you find patience in the waiting? When you are surrounded by others entering marriage and family, you're one failed relationship from another. So the typical answer here would be to prepare yourself, but that's not typical just because it's the go-to answer. It really is the answer. Because as you process through that, for me, I was 29 years single before I was married. I spent a lot of my, all of my 20s in being single. And so I can really help you, uh, encourage you to see that preparation is key. What you can't do is you can't prepare the other person. And that sounds logical, but you think about it. You, you, we spend too much time hoping and thinking of what they're going to be like. What if you invested all of that into who you're going to be? What if all of that became a part of who you are as a single person, realizing that you are single, however, you are not incomplete. You are fully and completely whole according to how God made you. Marriage doesn't complete us. Marriage just adds to us. And so as we are added to, as you are called into a uh, desire, you say, I want to get married, I want to be added to, it's keeping in perspective that God has me where he wants me right now. This scripture in Hebrews was really helpful for me in my 20s. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, So we do not throw away confidence. Confidence in what? Confidence that I'm going to get married. Confidence in who I am. Confidence in who God has created to me, me to be. Confidence in the fact that I'm not wasting my years right now while I'm waiting. Because too many times while we're waiting to get married, we waste our years and we sow wild seeds and we do crazy things and we don't work on ourselves. That confidence holds true that God can use me right now as I am. So don't throw away the confidence. It means don't belittle it. Don't let it go. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. 
understanding that every promise is attached to patience. You patiently wait for every promise. And as you're waiting for that, you realize, okay, God, you can do something in my life currently right now and not down the road. So I take a look at this question and I think to myself, so it says one failed relationship after another. And I would say to you, I've had every relationship in my life fail except one. Every one of them was a failure if marriage was the goal. So you need to define the goal of the relationship to determine whether or not it was a success or a failure. Pass-fail situation. What was the goal of why you were dating them? What were you trying to get out of it? Was it casual? Then maybe it wasn't failure. Was it just to get to know somebody? Maybe it wasn't. If you're dating to get married, maybe even look at it to say, every person I dated was a success until her because I found out that wasn't the one I wanted to be married to. So even then it wasn't a failure because then I might be miserable today. So I really would encourage you to define why you're dating and how you're dating and what you're walking through as you are dating in that as well. You want to you add anything to that? I have a question. Um, so when I hear that about patience and the waiting, um, I know that lots of us who are single are thinking, but I'm lonely. I'm lonely. That hurts. So how, do, how would we deal with that? Um, I think for single people, yeah, that's what we hear the most. Like, I'm lonely. So um, the number one thing you can do, if you're single and you're serving God, you love the Lord, you, need, you have so much opportunity to use that time to serve others and to serve God. And you should never be alone. You should um, always try to find community. And the, the best place to find that is in serving others and serving God. You have all of this extra time that you're not going to have when you do have a family in the future, uh, whatever that looks like that God wants for you. So I just wouldn't um, think of it as wasted time or that you're just sitting around waiting for the next thing you have. You need to use it to obviously better yourself, but to serve others and to serve the Lord, and he'll reward you for that. Um, and just not feeling incomplete until, you know, don't feel like you're an incomplete person until you find that find your husband or your, your spouse who you're going to be with. That's a lie that uh, even in our marriage, we, I had to figure out. Uh, he would make me so mad. I'd say, you're not making me happy. And he'd say, I'm not supposed to make you, you know, bring you joy. That, you, know, you, you have to be a complete person, a whole person, before you step into a marriage. And that's really so much harder to learn after you are married. It's so much easier if you can feel complete and whole in who you are and your relationship with God before. Who wasn't making who happy? What? <laughs> I, um, it's, it's funny when the microphone's in somebody else's hand. Let me tell you. I think that uh, that's a really great answer because I can recall back to when I was in my 20s and being single, I had access to more time, resources. I could do what I wanted with my money. I didn't have a spouse or children depending on me. I didn't have to have the accountability to say, hey, I want to travel and do this trip. I want to go and do ministry here because I was, I was traveling to do ministry then. I, I could just go. I could just, I had more access to things. And so you can actually leverage that in your favor as well when you're single. 
Because once you get married, I have more restrictions now in my life when it comes to that area as well because I have accountability and responsibility. So understand the season you're in and how you can be most effective in that season because now I'm effective in this season by being more present. And then there's other people that are depending also on the resource that I bring in as well. 15 seconds. Uh, trust and patience goes hand in hand. The more you trust God, the less patience is an issue with you. Because regardless of how many people you see get married or enter into a successful relationship, the better off you're going to be because you know and you have understood that God has you and that at the right time and at the right place, it will happen for you. So trust and patience go together. That's good. You know, if you're looking for a relationship at the Avenue, we offer that initially in two places. It's through Dream Team and it's through small groups. Those are two places that you can access relationships immediately here at the church. Let's move on to question number four. As a Christian, what are things I should look for in dating? So as a believer, what things should I be looking for in dating? Um, I think that oftentimes we know the immediate response is that we should marry, uh, we should be looking for somebody that is a believer, and that is a foundational truth. But you have to define what are you looking for in dating. If you're looking to date just to date and get out there or get on the scene, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with dating apps. And if you, in the, in the world we live in today, I pray for single people because it can be challenging. And so if you use a, a Christian dating app, and there needs to be guards and accountability because I hear some of those apps is crazy with the way you got the swipe. So be cautious. However, use those tools in a healthy way as well. As you're looking, what should I be looking for? I would refer back to a message we did here back in the beginning of the year where we talked about where there is no vision, where there is no sight, where, there is, where we aren't looking to see where we're going, people perish. It doesn't mean perish as in diet. It means they're discouraged. It means they're frustrated. And so when you're not looking at where you're going, you become frustrated. And so if you don't know what you're looking for in the dating world, then you become frustrated by it. And so I would encourage you to, first of all, find a primary, uh, why am I dating? What am I looking for in this? And so I'm looking for a believer. And then you go into compatibility. But lastly, and certainly not leastly, the most important piece of that is calling. Because two believers can be serving the same God, yet have two different callings and make a miserable marriage. One can be called to be a missionary on foreign soil, and the other can be called to serve here locally, just in another world, in any, starting a business. And so you have to have a common ground on calling, which is greater. The foundational piece is Christian. Then, hey, are we, do we get along? And then it's calling. And as you look for these things and you ask these questions and you get to know somebody, super helpful. Anybody, quick answers here on, as a single person, what should I be looking for? I would just add, don't settle. God has a plan for your life. Do not settle. And I'm actually going to use something when we were dissecting this. Um, Pastor Dave, you had mentioned um, it's a tendency, it's our human tendency to look at appearance first. We naturally gravitate to what we find physically attractive. And it matters. It does. It, it counts. It matters. Absolutely. However, if you go from 
the inside to the outside. That, that is the way. You look at the things that are, because physical appearance does matter, but it's going to change. It's going to change. Um, you want to make sure that you're headed in the same direction. And don't settle. Anybody else? Yeah, that's great. That's a great answer is to hold your value, hold your principles. And that's why we say build your life on the Bible so that you have personal values and you will see God bring somebody into your life whose, whose values match. And then together you can be more effective as well. Uh, number five, uh, and what do I do if I am saved and my spouse is not? Good question. All right, well, 1 Corinthians 7 says, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his believing wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, I love this scripture because there is hope placed all throughout it. So this does not mean that you save your spouse. That is their choice. That is, the cho that is their God-given choice, just like you had that choice. What it does mean is that you belong to the Lord. And because of that, the transformative work of the Holy Spirit is working in your life and working in your family's life. And so what I would encourage you to do is love your spouse. Love them well. And the way you do that is to grow in your relationship with Jesus. Follow the principles that he lays out in the Bible for relationships. They are, they are all throughout scripture. Pastor Tara addressed some of them. You know, ladies, submit to your husband's leadership. Men, lead your families well. Do not step out of your role. Go and follow what God has laid out before you, and that will be the greatest example of all to your unsaved spouse and, and show them that Jesus is worth following. That's, that's, it is good. Uh, what do you say to somebody who, um, who says, well, I feel like I'm held to a different standard because I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I, I'm trying to do what the Bible says to do, but they're not. And so how do you, how, what would you say to that person? Because it's like, well, I'm living here and they're not living here. They live wherever they want to live. So are the principles of God universal or are they just from, do they apply only to the believer? I would say that when you look at Jesus, he loved people where they were. So when we look at the principles of, of relationships, as I referred to earlier in the Bible, those are universally good principles, guys. People apply them without even realizing it. Forgiveness, biblical principle. Uh, gentle answers, biblical principle, telling the truth, walking in honesty, fidelity, yes. biblical principle, right? So universally, that will level up your household. Now, what I would say is if 
if your if your spouse does not share the same obligation to follow Christ in in some of the their personal behaviors again that's where the that's where you pray for your spouse love your spouse don't hyper focus on their unbelief and their sin allow the holy spirit to work and you focus on you that's good uh, and i do believe that that is the truth and if you are a spouse if you are married to somebody who is an unbeliever understand this you are the bible they are reading you you're the way you're living your life the patterns the mindset the attitude the direction the priorities the time the schedule what you do with your money what you how you respond to kids how you respond to them all of that is the reason why you should be biblically based because that spouse who is unbelieving is not reading the word of god they're watching your life and so you should raise your life up to the highest level possible for the sake of them seeing God in you and that possibly being the key to changing everything in them. And you can be the greatest witness to them of God's love and forgiveness. Let's move on to question number six. Question number six. In God's eyes, is marriage solely between a man, a male, and a woman, a female, and is that exclusive? Uh, yes. Uh, Matthew 19, 4 through 6 says this, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, so then as they are no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. But I want to bring up a story um, real quick about that because I think universally the church, a lot of us agree that yes, it is a man and a woman, and, and it's pretty clear in Scripture. But I, I want to talk to or speak to the, the ones who may not believe the way we believe, and, but yet are still seeking a relationship with Jesus in churches around the world. Um, it reminds me of that, the parable of the woman at the well. She was an outcast, a pariah would probably be a better word. Um, she was shunned by uh, the Israelite people because she was a Samaritan. Um, she wasn't a pure blood, so to speak. She was shunned by the people of Samaria because of her overly married lifestyle. That's why she was out there drawing water when no one else was there but Jesus. And, but in that, we never find Jesus taking a scroll at the time and beating anybody over the head with it because of their shortcomings. Never. You can't find it. And so I think at the church that what we have got to do is we have got to love and extend the invitation to live life with people who may not believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. And because I'm going to tell you something. I don't know about you. I'm not perfect. And I really don't want anybody up in my closet. Just like you don't want me up in yours. But at the end of it, we have got to walk in love and extend love at every opportunity where we can. And, um, and it says in that, it says, let not what God has joined together, let not man separate. And, and as I was reading that, I actually think that Jesus in his foresight and knowledge actually could still use that and could mean it easily that do not let man separate the institution of a man and woman and let that be the definition of marriage. Um, we love you if you believe different. I want to live life with you. I'll go to your house if you'll come to mine. 
I want to cry with you, laugh with you, be a brother and sister with you. And I think that's what the heart of the avenue is. Um, but again, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That means whatever your shortcoming is. And here's the deal. We, we may not be able to bless you in a union, but we're not going to bless an adulterer or a thief or a liar in the same way. We can't say, go and be blessed in that. But I'll tell you what we will do. We'll love you every single day you show up here. We'll love you the best way that we can in God. And, and I want to leave you with this. The same way that if you're an adulterer, a liar, or a thief, or whatever the case is, we would tell you, God has better. He has better. And so we encourage you in that. If you believe different, that's okay. But God has better. I'm glad this question came in. It's a good question. It's a hot topic in our society today. And, and we have people, um, we see it all over the, the news or in the churches and in different areas. And the uh, different generations are having conversations and being influenced in it. Uh, marriage has always been under attack. Marriage was instituted by God. Marriage is God's idea. Marriage is covenant between two people. And he uses that even as an illustration when he talks about, as a believer, the church being the bride when Jesus returns to receive. That's how great marriage is, is that he would even use that as the analogy between, the metaphor between Jesus being joined to the church forever in heaven to a husband and a wife. And so that obviously comes under attack. Uh, gender identification comes under attack. The devil trying to bring counterfeit ideas to what God has created. So God is a creator. God brings life. But then the enemy will always try to bring second best. The enemy will always try to bring a counterfeit. Not just in this area, but in every area. As a married man, the enemy would try to bring me a counterfeit that somebody else looks better or thinks better or laughs at my jokes that she misses, and so I should be married to them. It's always a counterfeit option. That's all the enemy. He can't create something, so he counterfeits what God has created. So inside of this, um, speak into this a little bit more, uh, somebody, on a thought or uh, just anything else you might have to say on it. Okay, so an argument that I hear for this a lot is, but I am not a thief. I'm not a murderer. I was born this way. This is who I am. And here is what I'll tell you. Yes, we were born sinners. The Bible says uh, in Psalm, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. We were born with sin in us. And so some of us, you know, we have the impulse to lie when, when we're about to be found out. Um, but I don't find identity in being a liar because the blood of Jesus tells me that is not my identity. That is really good. And um, understanding that we are, I love your response, Pastor James, is that we are um, going to exist 
to move people from where they are to where God wants them to be. The way that you come into this church, we all come in from different backgrounds and different ways. And so we must be in a place. See, the world take, takes terms like accepting or approving, and they try to use them as their own labels. And then the church can't figure out what to do with them. Listen, we have to be in a place where we understand just because you accept somebody doesn't mean you approve like a parent to a kid, like just because you say, hey, you're welcome in my home and you can sleep in that bed tonight, doesn't mean you approve of every action the kid did that day. And yet some, for some reason or another, the world is able to put that in two and one and it has to be synonymous with each other. And so the heart is, and, and we just, we don't, we don't make a, a, we don't sound a trumpet and make this as if it's one thing that stands out amongst everything else. We all come to Christ as we come to him. And we allow him to change us and transform us to become the person he's created us to be. Let's move on. Uh, number seven. How do I break unhealthy cycles? This is a big question. This, this is a whole series right here. It's a whole, a whole sermon series in one, in one answer. How do I break unhealthy cycles? Well, the first thing you have to do is recognize that you're in an unhealthy cycle. Oh, yeah. Um, you can't be in denial about it. Recognizing um, what's triggering you, what response are you doing that's ending negatively every time, how it's making you feel. Those are ways that you can see. If you're doing something over and over again, expecting a different result but not changing how you're doing it, you're in an unhealthy cycle. You're expecting something um, different. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So he's already paid the price. He's given us freedom, and he doesn't want us to be burdened again and again. Um, getting out of cycles like that, again, first you recognize it. Secondly, you need to find somebody that you can be accountable to to help you out of that somebody that you trust that has the same vision as you that is not going to enable that but is going to help you break free from that we have um specifically in marriages too we see a lot of people saying but he's not meeting he's not doing meeting my needs and but he's not he's not and then it's just it's a you see the cycle he's not doing that so i'm not going to give you what you need because i'm waiting for you to give to me what i need and and nobody wins there. It's just an unhealthy cycle. So I would say in times where you're feeling frustrated by your spouse, take a minute and just ask yourself, am I, am, I love God enough. I love my spouse enough. I'm going to get love him anyway, give him what he needs, even though I don't want to, even when it's hard. Um, there's a book, an old book, Love and Respect, that is so good. And that's what it's all about. Ultimately, men want to be respected. Women want to be loved. And if you can just ask yourself, am I, can I do that? And I, you would be surprised if you take that step and do it anyway, you're going to find yourself in a healthy cycle because you're going to start to receive what you're, you feel like you're missing because they're, so you don't want to wait on your spouse to give. Um, and the world's love is give and take. God's love is unconditional. Oh yeah. Cycles are so hard to break. So we have, a, we have freedom groups here at the church, small groups. We talk about small groups all of the time. We really believe in them. But our freedom group, if you have, if you're stuck, if you feel stuck and you cannot get out, that is 
somewhere, I would encourage you, don't do another small group until you've gone through that. It's a place where you learn how to find forgiveness, where you can get rid of shame, where you're breaking addictions and habits that you cannot get through alone or by yourself doing the same thing over and over. Um, They're just, it's a 12-week commitment. And I, I think that's what scares people off a lot of times is, well, I can't commit to that. Well, you have committed to years and years of unhealthy habits that you are just over and over again. 12 weeks is nothing if you can find freedom and something that's holding you back. And so to me, 12 weeks really doesn't seem like such a big deal. And I would just encourage you to plug into that freedom group. You'll find, you will find it. You'll find freedom there. That's really good. How many of y'all have attended a freedom, uh, freedom small groups here? Uh, the first service is full, and we've offered them for two semesters, and they will begin August 27th. And I'd encourage you to consider, strongly consider, because just as much as there is an unhealthy cycle that you need to break out of, I love the, the scripture she used where it is for freedom he has set us free, not to once again be bound by a yoke of slavery. What's he saying? He's saying you've been set free, you've been given forgiveness for your sins, and yet you can still be stuck and saved. You can be stuck and saved. And so you need to break those habits, those hang-ups, those hurts. They're real. We're not diminishing them. They're there. But you can live life without them. And watch this. You can get into healthy cycles. So when something happens and you get triggered, well, now I have a healthy response versus an unhealthy cycle. And you need to learn how to get into those healthy cycles as well. Uh, After this series is over, we'll go into a whole series on a deep wound issue on trauma on things that happen to us in our soul a soul care type issue series and I would encourage you two things one don't miss that series if you're looking to break unhealthy cycles don't miss that series and then two get in a freedom small group as they launch out in August Uh, we're kind of up against the clock here so we're going to run through a couple questions and I don't want to shorten the answers but we just need to be aware of the time here Uh, the next question is I have been divorced and I have said I love the, the Question number six. I'm so glad this question came in too. I love this question. I've been divorced. Can I remarry? All right, real quick. Uh, John, First John 1 9 says this. It says, We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When pastor goes, hey man, can you kind of clarify that on how that, what that has to do with, with being, if you can get married again, if you've been divorced? And it's because divorce, for whatever reason, still seems to have a stigma in the church. And we, we, we have a scarlet D, you know, and, and, and people look like we're less than. But I would just want to make mention to you today that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It is a sin that God hates. But let me read six things real quick that he also hates, that we don't ever put the same stigma on these things as we do divorce. It says, these six things the Lord's hate, yes, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. God hates divorce. He hates it for two reasons. He hates it because it's it's a reflection or it's synonymous with, as Pastor mentioned earlier, his relationship with us. But you know, he also hates it because he knows the pain that it causes in our lives. But I want to tell you something. If you've been divorced, God, I picked wrong, I did wrong, 
It was my fault. It wasn't my fault. But I give it to you. And God, and I ask you to wash me and forgive me of that sin. Now, Lord, lead and guide and direct me into the life that you have for me from this point forward. Paul said it's better to, to marry than to burn. And I used to think, ooh, burn in hell. What is he talking about? No, just burn with passion. So I just encourage you today. If you've been divorced, can't do nothing about it now. Pray. Ask God for leadership, guidance. Lift your head up. He loves you. He cares about you. You're not less than either. And walk into what He has for you for the, all of the remainder of your days. Let me ask this follow-up question real quick. And I know we're on the clock. I didn't ask this in the first service. But speak to somebody, anybody, if they're in a place where they just, right now marriage is miserable. And, well, if I'm allowed to remarry then, I'm just going to get divorced and try this again. That's a good question. <laughs> That's not how God wants it, though. When, you, when you're running up on problems with, in your divorce or in your marriage and you're, you're considering divorce, you have to give God every single opportunity to save it. If it's up to you, you do it. And I get a little personal. Before my divorce, I've been divorced 10 years, that I know that I can sit up here in front of a church and say out loud that I know what... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? The love... Um, yeah, sorry. Brain deal there. Unconditional love is. I tried it, and I gave it, and I did every single thing that I could. But at the end of the day, it just didn't work. And, and I, and I want to say that, did I fail on some reason? On some part, probably, in that I could still be trying. But at one point, after it was done and after it was over with, all I could do is say, okay, God, what do you yeah. have left? Yeah. So all I want to tell you is if you're in that spot, you fight, you pray, you fast, you love unconditional, you do everything in your power that you can do. Because you, you do have to look at God and go, hey, did I do my best? And you need to be able to say, I did the best I could and move on. I really like that answer. And I think that, you know, I tell people this, whether you divorce or not or stay married, forgiveness is not optional. You're going to forgive on either side of it. So try the forgiveness now, the empathy, and see how far that gets you and watch what can happen when you begin to love and uh, come from that perspective in life as well. So uh, we have one final question and we are up on the clock. I'm going to ask it and I may just kind of walk through it myself as I close out here. Uh, the last question is a huge question. It's not to be uh, diminished in any way. It says, how do I handle being betrayed and lied to in a relationship? And so if I asked the audience to just raise their hand, if you've ever been lied to or betrayed, I'm sure every hand would go up. And if I asked you if you were the liar or the betrayer, every other hand would go up. Not as in lesser people, but the other left arm. Like we've all been there on both sides of it. We've been lied to and betrayed and we've had it happen to us. And by no means is it something that we should, uh, do I, are we encouraging you to just say, well, that's okay, that happened. Listen to the scripture. It says, Jesus said, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive the sins of others, your Father will not forgive you yours. It's a very strong scripture. That's why I say in marriage, try the forgiveness side of it. You're going to have to do it either way. And when you've been betrayed and lied to, forgive up front. Don't hold on to it. Now, in saying that, forgiveness does not qualify it as that it's okay. It does not give it the permission that it happened or that it ha can happen again. And so when, our, when we're raising our boys and we teach them to apologize, we say, you did something wrong, you need to ask forgiveness. So he'll walk over to him and he'll say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Will you forgive me? Good. That's the way to apologize. Recognize what you did. And I, if, I, if I could do it over, I would do it different. That's what you're saying. But the response is, we have not taught the proper response. And so many times when that happens, the other boy will say, it's okay. It's not okay. And when we say to somebody who asks us to forgive them, we say, it's okay. We've given them permission to lie, betray, and hurt us again, or that what they did was all right. And it wasn't all right. It hurt. And there's no pain like heart pain and emotional pain. So stop living in the lie that what they did in order to forgive is qualifying as, as okay. It's not. But the qualification as to whether or not it was okay does not also apply to whether or not I have to forgive it. So I forgive it and I recognize that it was wrong. It shouldn't have been done. And then I create a boundary if I need to and say, okay, this is where life is at right now. You can bring in third parties. If you've been hurt and betrayed, I would encourage you to forgive it, to recognize that that doesn't mean that you have to approve of it. And then lastly, to be in a position where you can put yourself in a place to be healed and whole and healthy. As I close this morning, I think that um, many people would say, Pastor, I'm here for the first time, or I'm just visiting, or I'm checking it out, and if I want to live this God-first life, what would be the starting point? What would be the beginning place? What is the place that I go to first and foremost, and it's simply through Jesus. In order to forgive other people, we must be forgiven as well because we've all sinned. We've all come up short. We all have mistakes. We all have errors. What is sin? It's just missing the mark. It's maybe you knew better. Maybe you didn't know better. But whatever the case was, as Pastor Jessica said, we've been born into sin. We're born into this life carrying this thing, and we need to be forgiven. And that's what God did for us. He sent Jesus, who is our forgiveness took our place and so that's the place we land but that's a choice you have each one of us to say I want Jesus to forgive me of my sins and I can begin living this God first life for some of you the decision today is to say today I'm going to live this God first life it's not something I've heard before it's not something I've practiced before but today I want to start I want to put God at the top of my priorities in every area the value the highest value of my life and work my life filtered through his word would you pray with me this morning? Just close your eyes. You're watching online here in the room. I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. And if you want to move by faith, it just means by trust into believing God for the forgiveness of your sins, do so in your heart. And we're going to celebrate with you in just a moment. If you're ready to move into that God-first life, do that as well. And you'll have the opportunities to practice that every single day. Would you pray this prayer out loud with me? Say, Jesus, come into my life and change me. Forgive me of my sins and my shortcomings. Make me clean. Today I choose to live a God-first life and to lead my life that way. 
placing you as the highest priority I have. Thank you for giving me the wisdom and understanding and forgiving me of my sins. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said aloud. Amen. Amen. Come on, do me a favor, put your hands together, celebrate. This panel did a great job. I'll tell you, some of the questions and some of the things that we talked about are different in the first service. All the questions are the same, but how they led in the conversation piece varied at times. So if you want to get more uh, uh, expounding on some things, and Pastor Jessica had a great answer to that last question that I just covered, uh, go back and you can watch that service as well or catch the podcast there at myavenue.church as well. Hey, have a great week. Glad you're here this morning. Make sure you stop by the Next Steps table. Go to Growth Track tonight. We're excited for this series. Bring a friend back next week. Have a great week, Avenue Church. We love each one of you.